hello to Mary. Hello, hello to Helen. Hello, hello to the kittens. Hello, everyone. Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries. And we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody, welcome to Scattered. Uh, we're in Esther chapter 4 and 5 this week. Um, quite a lot happens, very exciting. We left the story last time on a bit of a cliffhanger, so this decree has gone out that in the 12th month, which is in about 11 months I think, all of the Jews throughout Persia are going to be slaughtered. There's going to be this massive genocide and we're waiting to see now in the story how is God going to preserve his people as he has promised so let's see what happens in these two chapters um can one of you guys uh, summarize the story of what happens in these two chapters for us so that as we kind of work through it we can give we can give a kind of idea of the picture that's that's being painted here Sure. There's, I think there's a few different scenes that go on in these chapters. So to start with, we're with Mordecai, who is lamenting really publicly um, outside the gate of the city. And then we go to Esther, who sees that and they can't talk to each other directly. So there's a messenger that goes back and forward between Mordecai and Esther. And Mordecai is pleading with Esther to take a step towards the king to try and save the Jewish people. Um, she agree- then agrees to do that and asks um, Mordecai to get all the Jews to fast to, um, before she takes that step towards the king. Um, and then we, beginning of chapter five, we see Esther putting on her royal robes and going into the king, which is a dangerous thing if she's not been invited. But he um, is keen to see her, wants to know what she'd like. And so she organises a feast and invites him and boo his Haman to the feast that she has but she's then pretty shrewd and won't talk about what she wants but just gives them nice food and wine the king again promises to give her whatever she wants and she invites them to another feast the next day and then the final scene is um with again Mordecai is outside the city gate still refusing to bow down to Haman and Haman is furious about this and takes some pretty poor advice from his wife and friends and decides to build a gallows to hang Mordecai on. So we're we're left Mm. with another cliffhanger where Mordecai's life is in danger and um, we're waiting to see what happens at the next feast. Yeah, because it's looking like, isn't it, that obviously the Jews are all going to be slaughtered in 11 months, but it looks like Mordecai is not even going to make it to that day at this point. So yeah, the the immediate threat now is to Mordecai, isn't it? From this massive gallows. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Jill. So we see a lot more of Esther, don't we? In these, in these chapters. I mean, up until now, she's kind of been this obedient niece, uh, obviously very beautiful, um, fulfilling her role that she's been given, but now, we see a lot more of of her. What do you make of what she does in these chapters, kind of what we see of her character? Um, Yeah, let's talk about that. 
I think it's it's an interesting turning point for Esther here, isn't it? It's the beginning of, of her real change. Um, in chapter four, she's referred to as Esther throughout. But in chapter five, you've got her beginning to be referred to as Queen Esther and much more of a sort of, um, it's almost like a maturity, a... Uh, she begins to develop a sort of regalness about her stepping into her role as queen here. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing because she, obviously she has concern for Mordecai, but then she effectively begs off helping her people. um, And she has to be almost, it's a bit ambiguous, but the way that Mordecai persuades her to assist her people is almost like a threat. You know, you, you think you're going to get away with this, but actually you're going to end up dying. You're potentially going to die either way. If you, if you may die, if you go to help your people, but you will die if you don't. Um, And then, yeah. And then chapter five is just this further growing into this role as a royal, a member of the Royal household. Question for you. Do you think Esther thought that if she didn't say anything, then she would get away with it? Like, what is it that she's, do you think she was afraid in in kind of verse, we're thinking kind of verse 11 um, here where she's saying basically, if I go into the king's presence, I'm, I could be put to death and the king hasn't called on me for 30 days. What's, what do you think is going on there? Well, I read that a little bit like, um, you know, there was a few passages in Ruth where the sensible decision was to do the sensible thing and that was really opposed to the faith-based decision and I, I read that and thought, sensibly, with her sensible head on, she knows that the only thing in her favour is her beauty and she's not been called to the king for 30 days. And so um, with her sensible hat on, she's going to die if she just presents herself because she's slightly out of favour. And yet I think Mordecai then really pleads with her spiritually and she then is persuaded, I would say, spiritually that there's more at stake than just the sensible decision but she's she then starts to view the whole situation through the eyes of faith that that was how I I had real sympathy for her you know she's in this sort of moment of identity crisis isn't she to because to save her people will mean admitting that she hasn't been living as a devout Jew it will and but it will also mean identifying herself as a target for destruction so potentially she's going to end up with the Jews not liking her at all and she could potentially put herself in the firing line in terms of the Persians and up till now she's been such a passive character in some ways you know very subject to her circumstances and all all of a sudden she's been thrust into this situation but it's such a turning point isn't it and you know Vashti was Vashti ended up in the situation she was in for taking her own initiative And now Esther's at this point where a make or break decision point where she also has to take her own initiative, knowing what happened to Vashti for doing the same. It's not an easy, I I don't think we can comment on what happens, whether it's right or wrong, but you can understand the difficulty of the situation that Esther's in. I guess these, these verses really commended Mordecai to me because I felt like he was, basically preaching the gospel to her wasn't it and saying God's promised like one of the examples would be back in Genesis 12 that um he's going to bless his people will be blessed and God's going to protect his people and people whoever curses God's people will be cursed and so 
I, I just saw this as Mordecai applying the promises from the Old Testament of the gospel into this circumstance and pleading with Esther, let's not view this through the eyes of the empire. Let's view this with the eyes of faith and let's apply God's promises into this circumstance. And God's going to do this. And you've got an opportunity to be part of it. Come on. Um, and so I just thought it was a really beautiful application of the gospel from Mordecai and it would appear that her heart softened to that and she sees okay there is a bigger purpose here than the king there is a a bigger king than Xerxes. I was going to say yeah I feel like the challenge that um, Mordecai gives to Esther um, in those verses 12 to 14 you know Mordecai's saying isn't he this this isn't an issue of of um, Esther saving them or God saving them. God is going to save them. God is going to use them. Um, but which human agency is he going to use? Are you, Esther, willing to be a part of what God is doing? Are you going to let him use you for his purposes and for his glory? Because God is mm-hmm. faithful, isn't he, to those who turn back to him and are reconciled with him? Although we can't look at Esther as a sort of moral guide, we can understand the how she we can look at how she resolves the tension in her identity. You know, she hears the gospel and she's then from Mordecai effectively and is then thrust into this tension of her identity. And she has to decide, am I going to cast my lot in with God's people or am I going to continue to cast my lot in with the pagans? And I think I just felt like that was such a an interesting tension in, in our lives as we live our daily lives. You know, it's a daily decision we have to make, is it? Am I going to believe the gospel? Am I going to cast my lot in with God's people? Or am I going to cast my lot in with the pagans, the non-Christians that I'm surrounded by? Yeah, because and there's this famous uh, verse, isn't it? Uh, this famous part of verse 14, and who knows that you, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Um, And I kind of found that challenging um, in a way. I'm pretty sure that Esther didn't see this turn in her life of kind of becoming a queen and having this supposed power. Like, I guess she did have some form of power. And and I guess in our lives as well, sometimes we find ourselves in situations, don't we, where we wouldn't have chosen it. We wouldn't have necessarily seen it coming. um, And yet suddenly something happens and we're like, ah, God's got me here for this. Um, and I think it's always great, isn't it, in, in the small things and in the big things to just be looking for God's providence in our lives. You know, it might not be something as big as saving, you know, preventing a genocide, but the things that seemingly are unforeseen or maybe even hard um, or painful, like often God, God, God's got you in that situation so that you can be a blessing to other people. Um, I found that really encouraging. Um, and she replies, doesn't she? she? She calls a fast, doesn't she? What do you make of that? I, When I was reading up about this a little bit, there was a big debate about the fact that there's a lot of talk about fasting, but there's no talk of prayer. And um, I think there's a big debate about, I think I land on the fact that why would you fast if that wasn't a prayerful fast? What does she need to lose some weight or is it an actual I, I don't I I think it has to be linked to prayer doesn't it because you're 
Okay. I never can, thought of that. You can see the way mine, my mind's working. I'm feeling, I feel like I've gained a few pounds. I need to lose some weight. If I'm three, three days lighter, then I might get into the king better. Um, but I don't, but I don't really think that. I just think surely that is an act of dependence on God and a prayerful saying, what I'm going to do here feels really risky. And I've, I'm really aware it might not succeed. So I really want to set aside three days to, you know, petition the Lord. So I would see the fast and the as a prayerful thing. But I don't know what you guys thought. Well, she reaches out to the Jewish community in this, doesn't she? She's not like saying, right, yeah, I'm going to do this. I have got the power. I'm beautiful. I'm going to go into the king's presence and do this thing. I think it definitely shows that she's not relying on herself um I think if she was she just would have maybe gone and done it but it's it's this recognition that potentially that that God is king God is the true king who she needs to go into his presence and bring this matter before him and not just her but her whole Jewish nation needs to bring this before God like or or the people the the Jews in Susa um I don't know how many that would have been but I think it, it it shows the kind of community nature, doesn't it? Of, you know, there's this huge problem. Let's come together and and pray about this together. Let's fast together because this is this is all this is about us, not just me. And I also think it it's a way of the Jewish community and us when we do it, of humbling ourselves. You know, when you fast, you feel weak, you feel more of your physical weakness, you recognize more of your the weakness of your mind, like, wow, I'm so controlled by food in my life <laughs> that all I can think about is food right now. I, you know, I can't manage a single day without it, really. Um, and so by fasting, you're humbling yourself before God, aren't you? You're weakening yourself and saying, we don't have the ability to do this. Only you mm-hmm. do. Please, Lord, help us. Yeah, I found this section such a helpful almost model of this is the Christian life isn't it that we humble ourselves before God in prayer and fasting and then we do whatever thing seems right almost against the you know for her it was against the odds wasn't it it was a it was a brave and unlikely thing to succeed that she did but yeah I found that a really helpful thing that let's not do things in our own strength but let's make sure that our hearts are humble before God and we're trusting him for whatever the outcome is. And yeah, mm-hmm. rather than we do things that we think's wise in our own strength. And then if it goes wrong, we beat ourselves or, yeah, I just thought the contrast between a self-dependent model and a God-dependent model was really helpful. Can you imagine how she felt when she was waiting uh, outside so it says doesn't it in, in chapter 5 verse 1 on the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance can you imagine how that felt like what courage it must have taken to get you know get all your beautiful clothes on that morning and go to be in the presence of the king and risk she's risking her life isn't she and she knows what's happened to Vashti like you're saying Helen she knows the nature of this king who kills with a word and is is has a temper that wipes out people um she knows what kind of guy he is and she's gone and waited waited outside his room um what what more do we see of Esther in chapter five what can we what can we glean from chapter five 
I guess that courage, Mary, that you've just been talking about, though, must have come from the fact that her confidence is in a greater king, isn't it? And that must have been that fasting and those three days must have been the thing that strengthened her and gave her that courage and reminded her heart of the real king to fear and the real king that she stood stood before every day. So, yeah, I, I think those things are linked, aren't they? The fasting would have really helped with that. Who, who's the real king here, Esther? Yeah, and I think, can you imagine, you're standing outside this door, you might be about to be condemned to death. You've got this sort of hope of life. You're hoping that you'll leave the room with life, but you are living in that moment under the threat of death. I just think um, it must have been terrifying. But yeah, I would agree with Jill. You know, Esther, I hope by this point would have recognised her decision probably had a flawed quality, didn't it? But, But God still was you know there's still this hope that god is going to use her i think that um her courage like jill i think her courage probably came from a turning back to the lord you know her instinct she hadn't been a practicing jew for a long time but her instinct when in this time of crisis was let's fast let's pray let's turn back to the lord like the jewish nation are called to do over and over and over again because they've turned away from him let's turn back to the lord i'm going to take courage in the hope of the promise of what god has told us in the past because i have turned back to him you know her hope is effectively um in the gospel that god keeps his promises and that he will use people um who turn back to him yeah, and I was I was struck by the kind of slow, steady way she does this, doesn't she? So she goes, she goes to the king. I guess right then, because he says, doesn't he? What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? You know, he he uh, holds out the scepter to her. Um, even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. And right then, I guess she could have said, "You're about to slaughter my people. Please don't." Um, but she's obviously thought this all through, so she prepares this banquet for him and Haman. And then again, like to what you're in that, okay, this banquet, now she's going to say something to him. And then she's like, no, we're going to have another banquet tomorrow. Please, can you come back again tomorrow? And it's just, I just think her her, her slowness is, is wise. Um, I'm not really sure why she did all of that, but it feels like it, mu- it, it must have been the right thing to do. I don't know whether she'd kind of got this wisdom from God while she was fasting that, you know, you shouldn't just rush into this. I don't know. But um, it's interesting, isn't it? The steady way that she does it instead of just like rushing in um, in a panic. I, I wonder whether that, that, yeah, that really patient. And it's almost like she's in the role of the mediator, isn't she now? She's the one mm. that's sort of her job's to mediate between God's people and the king. And almost because she knows the way the king works, the more times he says to her, whatever you want, Queen Esther, whatever you want, the more he's going to lose face if he doesn't do it. And so... Yeah, I wonder whether there's a a real wisdom there about understanding the nature of the king and his desire for public approval. So yeah, she's she's obviously studied the situation, hasn't she, and understood the characters at play as well as them being prepared to take a really patient, slow approach. Yeah, because mm. she she hasn't been in the presence of the king, like hasn't been asked into the presence of the king for thirty days. She's almost re-establishing the relationship, smoothing it out, making mm. sure that the king is appropriately honoured before. Uh, making her request it's pretty I think it's pretty smart and we're going to see a bit more of that in the next chapters a bit more of um, Esther's character and uh, what she's doing and it's like you said Helen it's interesting here isn't it in verses 
two and three, we start hearing her being called Queen Esther. Like she's she's really come into her role, hasn't she? And um, she's putting on her royal robes. Um, she's kind of owning owning her position. Yeah, I guess with the yeah. strength that's God that God's giving her. And I think it's really interesting, isn't it, that she only becomes start to step into that role of queen um, only after she claims her identity as being with God's people. That it only happens after that. It's not before. I also loved the fact that this, you know, we know from the book of Esther that this is the beginning of deliverance for God's people. But I just love that it happens. You know, it says almost a throwaway line in verse one of chapter five, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. And three days in the Bible is so like key, isn't it? But I just love that here, just like Abraham and Jacob and with Jonah, you know, on the third day, the deliverance of God's people from death and destruction was initiated, just like at Easter, just like at the crucifixion. And then, um, you know, this scepter from the king comes forward. The scepter, I think it's in Psalm 2, there's a there's a picture of, of God or Jesus push it, putting the scepter forward and ruling with an iron scepter. It's kind of representative of peace and and. That with this scepter, as Esther touches this scepter, she's granted life and not death just by touching mm. the scepter. And I, I thought it was such an interesting picture, given that the scepter is often a, a picture of God's rule and God's reign, mm. that it's when Esther touches that, that she's granted life. It's just such mm. a, a cool little... Um, I just love how much when you, when you dig into it, you can see the gospel and foreshadowing you just don't mm. see it at first, do you? But it's it's amazing how much the writer of Esther has done this, and how much the story points us um, points us both back, but also forwards. Yeah, it's really amazing. I, I, that, I just think that's really beautiful, isn't it? That whole identity thing that so often we fear, don't we? Submitting ourselves to God's um, kingship or to any authority above our own and yet once Esther's done that the freedom that she has to be the queen to act rightly is just so beautiful isn't it and there's a freedom for us isn't there once we submit ourselves to God's rule and authority because we're freed then from other fears and other um, lesser kingships in our lives. So, yeah, I Mm. think that's a beautiful picture of the freedom that being God's child gives us. And Mm. it's also a fascinating contrast to Haman, because if you look at Haman, you know, he's emboldened by the assumption that he's solidly in favour with Esther and Xerxes. And he builds this enormous gallows, which here's my Hermione moment for you all. Helen's Hermione moment. It's not actually a gallows as we know it. It's a spike that they used to impale Ooh. people. Yeah, they didn't have gallows. It, it was a spike that they would chuck their enemies onto. So you're going to get... Hang on a second. So like you throw them off something onto the spike? Yeah, you put them, you, you throw them onto the spike. So our English word is gallows, but there isn't, we don't have a word for it. So it would have been like a giant spike that they would have chucked somebody onto. And as tall as like a church steeple you know really tall and I just think it's interesting isn't it like the the size of the gallows is basically representative of the size of Haman's pride yeah you'd have to have really good aim right (laughs) well I guess you probably have a platform with several several people involved 
Oh dear, that is awful. Yeah, isn't it? Wow. I was pretty disgusted when I was reading about that. But thanks for sharing, Hermione. Well, I needed yeah. to, right? I haven't had a moment yet. We didn't talk about sackcloth and ashes. I could have gone for hours on that one. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry anyway. to miss out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, talking um, about Heyman, let's talk about um, hatred. And I mean, we had a bit of this last week um, in chapter three, um, the hatred of Heyman. Um, and I think it's quite striking in this chapter five when Heyman's like, he's gone home, hasn't he? He's super happy. He's in high spirits, according to verse nine. Um, he's with his family. Um, on the way, he sees Mordecai and he's like, oh, that Mordecai. Anyway, he goes home and he's and he's boasting to all his family about his wealth and his everything. But he just can't enjoy it, can he? Because verse 13, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. So... Let's talk about hatred. What are we learning about hatred from Esther? Um, and how is it challenging to us um, as Christians? I feel like Haman's hatred obviously is driven by pride, but he has allowed something to fester in his heart so much that it is coming out in an ev- in acts of evil and ugliness. You know, this issue with Jews that goes back a long time he was and he was personally slighted by this man who's a Jew you know who is he to be doing this to me it has festered in his heart and rotted it and everything he is doing as is as a result of that um Mm -hmm. I found that quite frightening there's a lot of things I would say that I harbor in my heart Mm -hmm. how much of those are currently festering and when will they come out in um, an unpleasant and ungodly way. Uh, I, yeah, the depths of our heart is quite extreme, isn't it? Mm. I found it um, a cautionary tale, I think. Mm. It has that way, doesn't it? Hatred of kind of nestling in our hearts uh, quietly. And yeah, you're right. And then something happens. I don't know, maybe it's it, maybe it's a person, a certain person, and you've maybe potentially not forgiven them in your heart or, you know, there's something many years ago that they did and then they do something else and it just is there, isn't it? It's at the surface in a second and you're ready. Like, we see here, don't we? Hatred leads to murder. I mean, Jesus said, didn't he, that if you've, if you've hated someone, you've, you've murdered them. And, and I can see, you can see the link, can't you? It's just ready to pounce. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we... When somebody's wronged us, it feels it feels wrong to let them get away with it or to forgive them because why should I release them from that debt? But this passage is so clear, isn't it? That it's it's Haman that is ultimately robbed by that mm. hatred because he can't enjoy the good things. He can't he can't rest or rejoice in the the good things in his life because the hatred just consumes him. And so actually, mm. when we choose to hold on to those negative feelings of hatred it's us that ultimately pays isn't it because it takes over it it becomes unleashed like a like some sort of monster that robs us of all the other things and all the good it's challenging isn't it because we might think to ourselves oh I don't hate anyone like I don't want to murder anyone but actually hatred hatred disguises itself doesn't it in other ways like little grudges or little things that we just think about people because of who they are prejudices um they kind of harbor in our hearts quietly don't they and we don't realize we have them until suddenly our 
emotions, our passions are inflamed and it all comes out, doesn't it? Um, and I think it's, I think it's challenging to me to take a good long look at my heart sometimes and be like, what am I harboring in there? Um, what do I need to give to Jesus? What do I need to forgive? What do I need to change in my heart so that I don't have these kind of sudden massive surges that definitely come? Yeah. And I think the other character in this little section at the end of chapter five as well, that we need to pay attention to is Zeresh. You know, sometimes we're not the one who's resentful with a friend who's dealing with the resentful one. Um, I, when I was reading about this bit, uh, it was interesting. They, they said that Zeresh is very, Zeresh's advice is really like Jezebel's to King Ahab in, in 1 Kings chapter 21. You know, all of Ahab's power and entitlement didn't satisfy him and he wanted more. So he arranges for the murder of Naboth to get this vineyard that he wants. Um, and this is really similar. You know, Haman has so much, but it's not satisfying. And so the advice of his wife leads to the well is they think it's going to lead to the murder of Mordecai like a reflection there and I just thought actually how often do I not challenge friends who are resentful and struggling how often do I not preach the gospel you know you can do it in certain ways can't you you don't have to be like well actually I think you'll find you're murdering your friend by thinking this uh, but <laughs> that's how Helen talks. I'd love well, it. I think, I know, next time, next time, one of you guys do that. Wait for it. Um, <laughs> not that you ever would. Uh, oh, we do. But, you know, how, <laughs> but how? How often do I not point the friends who are struggling with resentment or or a difficult relationship with someone? How often do I not point them to Jesus? How often do I go, yeah, yeah, that must be really hard and sort of almost encourage, you know, help them self-justify rather than saying, let's look at your heart in this. How can I pray for you? I guess, Mm. wouldn't it be great if that was the, that was a mark of Christian friendships that, you know, when a strong emotion, any strong emotion rises in your heart, rather than analysing the person that's caused it, (laughs) And, but actually, we were really good at saying, oh, there's a problem in my heart here. This strong emotion is a, is a kindness from God to show me that something's not right in my heart. And could you help me work that out? And could you help me analyse what's going on and what Jesus would say? Um, yeah, but you're right, Helen. So often we're just like, oh, that's so frustrating, isn't it? Or I can see how hard that must be living with a husband like that or a child like that. But yeah, what do you think we go we could do to encourage in that each other in that more? I think it's even seeing it, isn't it? I honestly I find this conversation really helpful because I think even you know when I think of my friends who may struggle with certain people or certain people that I struggle with, I think just being challenged on it myself and really rooting it in my heart um, and 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 challenging it in my heart. I think we're more likely to then be able to help others in their potential kind of prejudices or just, you know, grudges or whatever. I think, I think if we, if we ask Jesus and and ask the spirit to convict us of of stuff in our own hearts, I think we're more likely to kind of see other people through that as well and then be able to, to help them. I always feel like I'm super quick to see other people's, but I think actually the deep work first I need to do is in my heart and then, and then I can help better. The other challenge as well then, Mary, isn't it, is 
when we've seen that in our own hearts, are we prepared? Are we vulnerable enough to share that with other people? Mm. And when someone says, "How are you doing?" <laughs> rather than just saying, "Great, thanks." Oh, I'm mm. really grateful that I've seen some sin in my heart this week and God's really helped me to process that and repent of that. And actually, when we start being vulnerable and having those conversations about our sin, then it puts it on the on the table, doesn't it, for people? And it's something that, oh, we can talk about that. Um, that's, yeah. that's thing to, and actually, the seeing that as a kindness of God when we see the sin in our heart and are given grace to repent you know rather than hiding it but actually this is this is God's grace isn't it at work amongst us yeah that's really helpful and like I would love to I would love us to have friendships that that did that because often our prejudices are against people that are different to us aren't they so I struggle in a different culture to be like oh they do this and it's so bad and oh they do this and it's so different and they're wrong and I'm right and you know and I guess we do it in our own cultures as well, when people are just different to us. Um, especially, you know, if we're trying to live in a in a place that we might not necessarily have lived if we didn't love Jesus and, you know, and people are just different. And I think it's it's really helpful, isn't it, to be like the way I'm speaking about this person or the way I'm speaking about this culture actually shows that deep down inside I I I'm not loving them well. Um I find that quite ch- challenging in a in a different culture. We're so quick to think we're right. Um and sometimes we're not. <laughs> um, cool. So the end of chapter five, again, we're kind of left on another cliffhanger, aren't we? I mean, the writer of Esther knows how to build tension. So we've got this huge spike being built. Um, we don't know if Mordecai is going to survive the next week, let alone the next 11 months. And we can look at look at what happens next week. But guys, what encouraged you from these chapters? What... Um, what do we see God doing in these chapters? I mean, like we said before in Esther, his name actually isn't mentioned, but we we know that he's at work. What encouraged you? What challenged you this week? I think my big thing was dependence on the Lord before we act. Um, and whatever that looks like, whether that's prayer or fasting or seeking um, advice from other people. Yeah, I think my danger is independent um, acting rather than dependent reliance on the Lord. So I just thought mm. Esther's mm. model of that was so helpful, and because then the outcome, you know, then the outcome is the Lord's, isn't it? Rather, and so you're more, you're free to accept whatever outcome comes. Then, when you've done that sort of dependent heart work first, I think yeah, the hard times for me is when I'm desperate for my outcome, and it doesn't happen, and so. I just thought this was such a helpful model of it's the Lord that's wise, isn't it? And he's working his purposes out, not Jill Jump's plan for your life. Yeah, mine mine was very similar. I was really encouraged by the fact that God used Esther. He was faithful to Esther, even though her decision had a flawed quality. I found that really encouraging that, um, you know, regardless of the difficulty we're in, um, regardless of what we've done, we turn back to the Lord. We um, show humility, you know, Lord, I cannot do this. Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what the best thing to do is. I'm sorry that I've been acting like an idiot. And, you know, we know later in this story that he uses her mightily to save 
um, to deliver the Jewish people from death. Now, I'm not about to deliver anyone. No, I don't deliver anyone from death. I prolong their lives. But in my work, but um, I just found that really encouraging that actually it, it, it encouraged me to think about, okay, I'm going to be in, I'm going to be having to making, make difficult decisions or um, I don't know what the future holds, but I can have assurance that if I am in God's people, if I am identifying with them, God is faithful and true and everything will work out for my good. And so for me, the encouragement was there, but also the kick up the bum was there because it's how much am I turning to the Lord? How much do I humble myself and say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me out? <laughs> what about you, Mary? I kind of, yeah, I was kind of struck by a bit about what you guys were touching on earlier about the, the pitch of the gospel in this. I was kind of imagining how it was, how it was for Esther waiting to go in to see the king um, and having to dress herself in royal robes um, and be this advocate. And then he holds out the scepter. And I just was struck, like we were talking about before, like our king is just so different. Like we, we enter his throne room kind of dressed in royal robes of righteousness that we're given. Like we don't have to have that kind of fear of entering into his presence and that kind of waiting kind of feeling uh, of entering into our king kind of welcomes us in. Um, and he saves us from destruction because of our advocate who faced death and actually did die. Like Esther actually, you know, avoided dying, but our advocate died for us, for his people. And I just like you guys were saying earlier, like that picture of the gospel that we we see here is really beautiful and, and encouraging to me. You know, Jesus kind of said, didn't he, if I perish, I perish. He didn't actually say that, but, you know, he get, he was w- willing to give up his life for us. Um and that encouraged my heart when I when I saw that in the text. It's just, yeah, so full of beautiful foreshadowings and, and pictures um, for us to be encouraged. So, yeah, thanks, guys. That was I really enjoyed looking through those two chapters with you. Um, and we will look, uh, we'll carry on next week. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Bye. Bye. Yeah, definitely, because we... Um, oh, I can't remember what I was going to say. It completely went out of my head. Just give me a sec. No, it's gone. Oh, I was thinking it was going to be absolutely brilliantly amazing then with that level of um, build-up.